and I took it because it was a good salary for a 15 year old and I lasted two days in the office. I found myself in the bathroom crying, being like, this cannot be my life. I cannot answer to someone else. I just really want to go out, be able to build my business. So it's been in my DNA and at times when things do get challenging, I waver a wee bit to could it be easier? But I think when you're so dedicated to the overall vision, what I'm getting to live right now, sacrificing those years has been totally worth it. Welcome to CEO School. We're your hosts, Sanira Madani and Shannon Monson. And we believe that you deserve to have it all. Less than 2% of female founders ever break 1 million in revenue. And we're on a mission to change that. Each week, you'll learn from incredible mentors who have made it to the 2% Club, as well as women well on their way, sharing how they've defied the odds so that you can do it too. You're a real business now. Class is officially in session. This episode is sponsored by The Club, a quarterly box and digital monthly community to help you level up in leadership and life. Learn more today at join.theceoschool.co slash the club. Okay, so excited to introduce you guys to today's guest. Not many people can say they've started two successful businesses from scratch, built a million-dollar brand, which you know is a big deal. We talk about here, a member of the 2% Club, in her teens before turning 20, and won 11 national and international business and entrepreneurship awards all before turning 21. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to CEO and founder Liv Conlon. Oh my goodness, Shannon. Thank you for that amazing introduction. I always think it's like so weird to hear your own introduction back to you. You're like, did that, was that me? Did that do that that happen? Did I live that life? That was me. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So let's start, let's start from the beginning. I want to hear when, how old were you when you started your first business and what was the idea and what did you do? Yeah. So I actually started my very, very first business when I was 13. Um, I was in school and I was buying nails and I basically seen that they were, I was paying way too much for them. And I thought, right, there must be a way I could buy these cheaper and sell them to my friends. So me being me, I went on to Alibaba and I ordered 500 sets of them from China And I started to sell them on eBay and to my friends at school. And that really just gave me that first entrepreneurial bug. But when it came to being 16 and I was sitting my grades and I had the option to go to university and follow what I would say is probably a more traditional route of going to uni and then getting a job, I totally took the opposite path. I told my school, I'm out of here. I'm going to start a business. Um, they basically said, look, Liv, we actually think you're going to ruin your life doing this. Like wow. such a shame to see you like ruin your potential by not going to university. And from there, I launched my A Million Pound brand, which is the Property Stagers, which is a home staging company in the UK. Okay. So I want to back up for those that are listening that are not in the UK. So you're from Scotland, right? Yeah, from Scotland, from Glasgow. Okay. Yep. <laughs> in Scotland, do you you start university at 16? Is that the equivalent of high school or is that college? Help me. So I had, basically I had one final year of high school to finish. Okay. Um, so you usually go to university when you're 17, 18, but I actually like left school even earlier than that. So you're just like, I'm, I know what I want to do. I'm good. I can't imagine that was well received. What did your 
parents say? What did your friends say? What was that experience like? Yeah. So fortunately, like my mom's like always been my biggest inspiration. She had, she's always had her own business and I used to like skip tons of school to go on like business trips with her. I was always like on the laptop doing work for her. So she was always behind me. So that's been massively important to have like that parent figure that said, live, you can do anything and do something you love. But school and the traditional system, they really actually thought, I think at that point that I may be on drugs or something's wrong with me because they just seen that, you know, I was academically gifted and they thought, what are you doing? Like you should be a doctor or a lawyer. And if you're not one of those things, then your life will amount to nothing. Yeah, it's really hard for people to see outside of like the boxes that they're they're used to seeing. Okay, so you're like, peace out. You left school early and you started a property staging business. I want to hear what this experience was like. First of all, explain the business model, how you got your first sale. Let's start there. Yeah, so basically the idea was born because my mom was involved in property as well. She had a property that was on the market. It wasn't selling. It sat on the market for three months. And, you know, having watched a lot of interior design programs, I'd heard of this thing called home staging, but it wasn't really around in the UK at that point. No one was really doing it. And I said, like, let me stage the property and we'll see what happens. So I staged the property and it sold in three days above the valuation. And I was like, right, I think this might be a good idea to offer to other people as well. Um, So yeah, from there, I started it with literally like zero in my bank account. I'd never had like any form of job that would have given me funds to start it. And basically what I done was I went out to networking events, just told everybody what I was doing, got my first client. I asked them to pay up front so that I could use that money to then purchase the furniture so I could start the business like that. And I just scaled with that strategy. Every time I got a client, they'd pay me and then I'd buy the stuff with that money. That's really cool. And I think shows how much we can bootstrap. I started my business the same way. I was like, you pay me now and then I'll deliver the the services. And then that's how I built my website and everything. I'm imagining you though, a 16 year old girl. I know what I looked like at 16. I don't think other people would have taken me seriously. Were you ever afraid when you were going to these networking events and pitching yourself? Were you ever afraid that people would say, you know, who are you to, where's the real owner of this business? You know, is there that sort of imposter syndrome? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I used to have like my natural color of hair is blonde and I have natural like cuddles. So I had long curly blonde hair and the male, like the the property industry is a male dominated space. So I literally would bounce into these rooms, 16. I look 16 and would go up to these guys that are suited and booted and like try and tell them that cushions and artwork is going to make them more money when they were talking about like, you know, profit and all these figures that I didn't really know much about. So it was a challenge, but I think the way I held myself has always has been good. Even though I felt that inside, I definitely compensated with a big personality, but I think that confidence, once you get a little bit of success behind you, confidence starts to come. And every time I got a new client, I showed up a little bit more confidently and it really grew from there. But even at this stage with, you know, all the accolades and the a million pound business, I still get that feeling sometimes that imposter syndrome of like, is someone actually going to pay a 22 year old to coach them in a business, even though I've done it, like it still comes up. I love what you said that that confidence builds. You get the one yes 
and then the next and the next. And I think sometimes we feel like if we can't walk into the room with accolades, then we shouldn't even go into the room, right? But it's just not true. It only takes that one yes to say like, okay, wait, you can do this. And what's really cool about your story is you'd already proven it right? So you already had this story. You could go and say, Hey, we had this property, didn't sell for three months. We staged it, sold in three days. Would you like that to be your next property? Right. And so I think that's really good advice for new entrepreneurs to prove it first. So you're not going into that pitch like cold and blind, but still massive props to you for going up to, I've never heard that term before, suited and booted. And I love it. (laughs) Going up to these (laughs) men. Must be a Scottish thing. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Just going and being like, Hey, I I can help. So how, how did the business grow from there from, you know, one person going in and staging homes to a million dollar business while you were 16, 17, 18? Yeah. I mean, it was a complete whirlwind. And to be honest, it was complete hard work. So I'd say for the first three years of the business, I pretty much gave up any idea of a social life. I worked seven days a week, 18 hour days, and it was a very physical job as well. So for a a lot of the time in my first year, I was staging the properties. I even started lifting the furniture, which I look back on now and think, what are you doing? But at that time, I thought that this is how you build a business. So there was lessons learned. But in those three years, the first person I brought on to work with me was my mom. So that was awesome because she left her business and joined me. Um, So I had that, you know, that figure who was a bit older than me with a different perspective to mine. I brought that sort of youthful social media side of things. And she brought, yeah, the more sensible head, I guess. And from there, like we started to post on social media and because of what we were doing, it was so different. We actually got a lot of attention because I was young, because I I was 16 and I shared that story that, you know, we went from 30,000 pounds in the first 12 months of the business to the next 12 months turning over a million pounds, which was, yeah, it was like, it was rapid growth where we were just taking on, we were just saying yes to everything and we were delivering on it as well. Um, and we learned as we went along, we brought on team members as we went along. But yeah, it was... That's incredible. That's incredible. I want to like, stop and just acknowledge you for that because to go from 30,000 a year, which is roughly like what? $5,000 math? How's my math? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So probably like $50,000 a year. Yeah. Yeah. To a million dollars. I mean, that is a huge jump. And then thinking, you know, what is your average sale price, right? How many homes did you have to be doing to hit those kind of figures in your second year of business? Yeah. So on average, we stage around about three to 400 properties per year, but some, we get a lot of projects at times where, you know, in that, that year where we hit the a million dollar mark or a million pounds, we got a $300,000 installation and it was, it was 50 apartments to furnish. So I'd say on average or average price of what we offer is between three to $5,000. That's phenomenal. How did you, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking logistically, right? I run a business, you a brand new business one year and the next year you're doing three to 400 homes, apartments per year. How did you get the team, the manpower, figure out how you're going to create systems and how did you scale it so quickly? What was that experience like? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, Shannon, a lot of the time it was me doing all. I'm totally burning out. Like I had times where, yeah, I mean, I was waking up at 2am driving six hours to London, working a 14 hour day and then driving six hours back to get onto the next installation. 
But I feel like it put me in a very good position to then hire for that role because it is an intense position to hire for and it takes a certain type of person. So our team, I mean, I am certainly not the best manager of people, but over time we found what's worked for us. And yeah, we work with different team members who have a lot of flexibility, but they, we also discovered like someone needs to have an eye to be able to do this. So we've had a lot of teething issues. Um, but yeah, we, we probably at that point where we hit the a million dollar mark, we, we had a team of 10. So we were starting to share the workload a little bit more. That's so cool. I'm sitting here trying to put myself in your shoes and thinking about the things that I was doing at 18 years old. <laughs> what was it like essentially, you know, deciding for that those several years that this was your whole life? You know, what was it like seeing your friends go to university, be in relationships? I mean, I don't know, party, do things that you were, can't possibly have been doing if you're waking up at two o'clock in the morning. What was that like? And how did you stay true to yourself knowing that this is where I'm supposed to be, even though it's not the traditional path? Yeah, I mean, it was challenging at times as in the days where you are working those hours, you are thinking, I mean, there must be an easier way of life because this is challenging. And many times it did feel like I could just give this up, go get a job and, and it could be a lot easier to what I've chosen. But for me, it's just, you know, it's just never been in my DNA to take orders from anyone, to work for anyone. So when I was 15 and about to leave school, I got offered a position to be a mortgage advisor, a trainee. And I took it because it was a good salary for a 15 year old. And I lasted two days in the office. <laughs> I found myself in the bathroom crying, being like, this cannot be my life. I cannot yeah. answer to someone else. I just really want to go out, be able to build my business. So it's been in my DNA. Um, and at times when things do get challenging, I waver a wee bit to, could it be easier? But I think when you're so dedicated to the overall vision, you know, the overall mission of what I'm kind of getting to live right now, you know, sacrificing those years has been totally worth it. And I look back on them and I actually sometimes miss the hustle a little bit. I don't know about you. Do you feel that way? Oh, 100. It doesn't make any sense, but a hundred percent. I think there's this like, when you haven't made it, we're trying so hard to prove ourselves. I know for me, like I was trying to prove that I could support myself, that I could support someone else, that I could be successful. And there's like a, it's a game a little bit. Yeah. Don't you think like I'm getting awards, I'm getting recognized by the media. Like I'm, I'm working towards something. And I do think that there's a little bit, once you're, once you've made it, it's like, okay, yeah, I can do anything I want to, but do, what do I want to do? Yeah, I think in those moments, like when you're in that moment of hustle, you're kind of like dreaming that you're out of it, like anything else would be better than yeah. that. But yeah, now that I'm here, I'm like, I actually want to do like an eight hour drive, work 15 hours and then do it all over again, just to have that feeling back. And I guess what I would say to someone who's on their journey is try and enjoy those moments a little bit more because I think at the, the time I resented them. And now I think, well, those are those exact moments are the moments that built me to where I am today. Um, so yeah, just be grateful for them and, and enjoy them if you can. I like my whole body, I feel like I felt that in my bones. I think that the hustle is the beauty and it's what made you who you are. 
Had you yeah. not been willing to make the sacrifices to do those six hour drives and do the installs yourself. I mean, we're talking about manual labor. I'm, I'm imagining you <laughs> lifting couches up and rearranging room. Like that is a hard job. I've rearranged my living room twice during COVID. So I, I can only imagine that's a really manual job. And I think that those moments and being willing to do that is what got you to where you are. So I just appreciate you sharing that and enjoy the hustle. Okay. So I want to talk about, we talk about this million dollar mark, million euro mark. It's very less than 2% of female founders ever get here. Men are 30% more likely. It absolutely shouldn't be that way. And I'm so proud of you for doing this and doing it so young. And I want to hear what was the moment like when that bank account rolls over? Like what, was there a shift where you feel like I've hit this massive goal and what did you do? Yeah. Oh, I love that question. And it's actually something I've not even really thought about until this moment. So I won a business award very close to when we were about to hit the a million dollar mark or, you know, a million pounds in the UK. And in the interview, I sort of alluded to the fact that that's where we were heading. It was also in the award application and the media got hold of it and they actually printed it before I'd even like came out and said it to anyone. So in the newspaper, it was printed everywhere that I had already achieved this million pound business. And it was going, it was happening, yeah. um, but it sort of came out before I'd even like sort of processed it. But yeah, I think it was a surreal moment of, you know, one of the weirdest things for me was I had this vision board that I created when I started the business. And it was, I think it was year 2017 slash 18, where we hit that a million pound mark. And a couple of years earlier, I said that by 2018, I want to be making £40,000 turnover per year. And we'd hit that obviously a million million pound mark that year. So I think looking back on that, for me, it was obviously a massive journey, but I wasn't quite ready for it. I think I was still chasing after it, even though I'd achieved it, I was still getting my mindset up to the correct place. I was still having to step into that person who owns a seven-figure business. And I think it's over the past few years I've been able to do that. Yeah, it's a, I definitely agree that it can be a surreal feeling. And also that feeling of, just like you said at the beginning of this interview, was that me? Did I do that? It's almost like a yeah. little bit of an out-of-body and kind of, now what? So I would love to hear from your perspective. I love asking this question. I'm excited to hear from your youthful perspective. There's like a solid decade between us here. What advice would you give to another entrepreneur that is trying to hit that million dollar mark? What are the, if you could say, these are the top three things that I did that got me here and at such a young age, what would they be? Yeah, I'd say number one, don't focus on the figure because, you know, my goal was never to hit the a million pounds. It was to, you know, stage properties. It was to work with as many developers as possible. It was to have an amazing portfolio. It was it was really mission-driven more than figure-driven. And that was kind of like an afterthought of, oh, wow, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, I would say that that really, really was what happened. I'd say number two is to definitely have optics on your business, looking at the numbers. And that's something I hate. I try and avoid it at all costs. I don't want to look at any figures. But, You're creative you know, at heart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know. I just want to keep doing my thing. But it was when I actually got optics on the business that I realized, right, 
even though that figure is high, obviously with the type of business we're in, that's not all profit. It's not anywhere near profit. So let's start looking at the optics and seeing where we can improve. And then third, for someone that really wants to get there, I would say that to hit a million pounds, you need to have a strong personal brand. And I think that's really what carried our business through was that I was at the heart of it. I was the soul of it. And, you know, other people have tried to replicate that sort of success in a home staging business, but it really comes from the founder down. So I would say that you really need to, no matter where you are, you're right at the start, start documenting the process and start really putting your personal brand out there because, you know, I'm not known as the property stagers. We're known really as Liv Conlon's home staging business. And I would say that's definitely the key to your success. Yeah, I agree. I think it's so powerful, especially in the economy that we're in right now. People, yeah. we, we crave intimacy and in our businesses, we want to know that we are working with someone that we trust, that we respect, that we can, you know, feel comfortable doing that exchange of money. That's different than, you know, maybe our business was 20 years ago. Um, can you recap those three for us again, Liv? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So to recap, number one, I'd say focus on your mission, not the figure. Um, you know, that the mission comes first and that comes after. Secondly, I'd say get optics on your business. You need to know where you are to know where you're going. And then thirdly, I'd say your personal brand is everything. So whatever you're for focusing on marketing wise, it should be deep rooted in personal brands. That's such good advice. Okay. So what's next for you? What are you working on now? Now that you've hit this mark so young, I mean, I feel like my life was just starting at 22. What are you focusing on in this next chapter? So another really serial thing that's happening, Shannon, is I've written, written my journey into a book. Um, so the book is called Too Big for Your Boots. And basically it's called that because I've had so many times throughout my journey where someone said, don't shine too bright, turn down your light. Um, and people really just, you know, sort of wanting as a female, I think, and especially as a young female for me to shut up. Know your place. Yes. Yeah, yeah, know your place. And it was actually a specific quote that someone said to me in a lift. I just came off an interview uh, in London and someone met me in a lift and said, oh, I know who you are. I don't get too big for your boots. And it was quite a, one of those moments that I thought, wow, well, well, thank you to you. You've given me the title for the book. Um, but basically in that book, it's a how to start a seven-figure brand from zero. Um, I share a lot about my journey, being bullied at school. Uh, yeah, and it's really focused towards young entrepreneurs and females of how they can do it. I'm so excited to so excited to read it. I want to hear more, dig a little bit deeper here. Why do you think people said that to you so often? You know, like you're too big for your boots, or know your place, go back to college, right? Why do you feel like that was something that was said to you so often? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I hold a mirror up to a lot of people of, you know, what they have achieved or what they've not achieved by a certain age. And I do feel like when someone speaks to me or sees what I have achieved, they can think, well, I, I've not done that. Um, and I think it, any anyone that has any sort of judgment of you, I do think it's a reflection upon themselves of, of what they think. Um, so I feel like that's probably where it's rooted. Also, I have probably always been, I'm, I'm good at self-promotion and I just refuse to, you know, change who I am for no matter who it is. I think we need more people, especially females, which is why I love what you and Sunita are doing. We need more women at the forefront of all of this, not hiding what we've achieved, but actually shouting it from the rooftops. 
Uh, I could, could not agree more. I think what you said really resonated that, you know, a lot of times what people say about us is actually a reflection on their own insecurities. And so by you shining your light, it makes them realize, you know, what, what's missing or the dreams they haven't pursued. And for you to really stand your ground, it's, it's truly at such a young age and to know who you are and to say, you know, thanks for giving me the title of my book instead of really internalizing that and, you know, being smaller I think is so powerful and such an incredible example for other young women. So I just want to say thank you so much. Um, another thing that I wanted to like kind of touch on here that you mentioned is that I'm very like good at selling myself, good at pitching. So something I noticed you did recently, you interviewed the founder of Netflix and wait for it. Yes. Liv, <laughs> you sent him an Instagram DM asking to come on your podcast. And I'm thinking about this and I'm going, I've never... I've never gone and gone out of my way to pitch, you know, a really big brand. What, what advice would you give to someone else to, I think a lot of times this has been told to us, like the audacity, how dare she have the audacity, right? And it's actually what's been rewarded in your life. And what I think more women need to stand up and do just, just ask, right? So what helped you to make that big ask and to have the confidence to do things like that? Yeah. So, I mean, that was definitely one of the scariest moments for me sending that DM. And then also I interviewed Mark on the podcast. And when we stopped recording, I then asked him to write the foreword to my book, which he did. He said, yes. But when I stopped recording, I was literally no lie. I was shaking and I was like, Mark, can I ask you something? <laughs> and he was like, of course. And I asked him and he said, of course, Lev, I'll write the foreword. It's incredible. And it's definitely the highlight of my career so far. I think where that comes from is that I really am not afraid of a no. I always think, what is the worst case scenario if I send this? One, he won't reply, which I'm sure I'll go over and I'll probably send him 10 other messages until he does. <laughs> I love it. And secondly, yeah, if there is a no, as in he does reply and he says, look, no, your audience isn't big enough or I'm not interested, then it really is onto the next person, onto the next project or whatever it is we're working on. I think it is like a fearlessness there that you need to just break through that. I love, um, you know, the five second rule where five, four, three, two, one, just do it. And I think way too often, especially as females, we get way too into our head to think about what other people may think. And I have to say, the one thing that sort of carried me through this whole journey is just being an action taker and literally just executing on everything I've put my mind to, regardless of what people think or if it's a no, because, you know, I've had hundreds of no's to people on the podcast as well. Um, and I'm sure at one point, they'll hopefully be messaging, asking to come on it, um, and that's, I guess, where you look at where you want to be and then work back from there. That's so good. Tell us more about the five second rule. I haven't heard this before and I like it. Yeah. So it's the five second rule and it is from Mel Robbins. Um, so basically she talks about that when you go to take action, you have five seconds in your brain before your brain starts to come up with all the reasons to protect you. So literally, if you're going to put your hand up at a meeting and give an example, if you're going to ask someone a question, you have five seconds to implement before your brain's going to start to try and protect you and tell you all the reasons why this won't work. They'll think you're stupid. They'll call you names. Um, they'll comment nasty things on your posts. You have that five seconds 
where you can sort of beat your brain into taking action. That's so good. It makes sense because our brain's job is to protect us and we can't tell the difference between physical harm and embarrassment and shame. And so our brain's just saying, hold on a second, what's going to happen? I'm sure in your journey, this has happened a lot. You know, people saying things and shaming you or bullying you or trying to make you be quiet. How have you dealt with that? I know for me personally, this year on the internet, I've gotten more internet hate than I've ever gotten before. And it's still as a grown ass woman, it's still hard to hear. You know, I know who I am and I know my place, but it still hurts when your username 397, right? So how have you, <laughs> how have you dealt with that? And what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs? Yeah, I'm totally with you there, Shannon. Like it still hurts no matter where you are in your journey, although you know it's not true and it's from someone that that is feeling insecure, whatever, it does hurt. I think for me, something that I feel very fortunate for was I was bullied at school. I am all throughout like sort of my younger years and then certainly in high school. So I deal with this on a daily basis in person. Um, where it was very challenging for me because, you know, pretty much the reasons I'm explaining right now, I was shining my light too bright. People didn't like that. Um, and they wanted to make me um, quieten down, lose my confidence. So I, I dealt, I've already dealt with it as a younger person. And I guess the way that I, I try to view all of this is it's really became one of my biggest driving factors. Like when someone says, you can't do it or doubts it, I really feel like saying, watch me. And I know that, sound might, that might sound a little bit arrogant, but it's really what's fueled the fire like in my stomach a lot of the time is, is when that has happened. So when it happens online on a day-to-day basis still, um, you know, I've been featured in the press and people have said her mom and dad built this business and they had really nothing to do with all of those different comments. I just think, you know, power through, don't take it personally. I love the block button. It's my best friend. <laughs> and I just block left, right and center because, you know, you need to get... And I always think my one favorite quote I think I've ever heard has been, you're never going to find someone more successful looking down on you or commenting or doing anything. You're not going to find Oprah on your post saying your ass looks fat in this. You're not going to see Tony Robbins telling you you're crap at being a coach. Like, that is not going to happen. And those are the people that I want to be in a circle with, not people that are tearing other people down on posts. It's so true. It's so true. And I think that that perspective is really beautiful and helps to put, you know, a lot of things into place here. You know, I always say, would I take advice from this person? Right. And yeah. that helps give me that perspective to, okay, they can call me names online. Would I want advice from them? And I think that helps me to protect who I am listening to. You know, there are people close to me that might criticize or give feedback that I do want to listen to that's constructive and it's helpful. But if it's not someone that loves me unconditionally that I would want their advice from, then you can take your comments right to somebody else's page because you're blocked. And I love that. That's <laughs> something that I do as well. We are big believers in. My sister's an influencer. I know she loves the block button too. This is your space. And yeah. I know there's been a lot of talk, at least in the U.S., about censorship and free speech. So I would love your thoughts around, you know, what your personal brand that you're building. If someone says, I'm afraid to block people or like, I don't want to censor people, what would you say to them? Yeah. So I would say that in like real life, as in when I'm not on a phone or on a laptop, when I'm actually living my day-to-day life, I am so, so protective of who's in my space. And it's, you know, my really close family members and a few very close friends. It doesn't actually extend 
more than that. Obviously, when you capitalize on social media and all these different platforms, you then open yourself to a much wider audience. However, I think you still have the right to protect that space and see who you want to see. So even for example, everything I do is in bubbles. I don't want to go onto Instagram and see people on my feed that don't inspire me, make me want to be better. So I only ever follow people who are more successful than me. That's the sort of content I want to be consuming. Um, So I think whether it's consumption or people who are following you, that's totally your right. And you can protect who sees that is up to you as they can as well. But I don't think there should be free speech if you don't want someone to be, to be, you know, abusing you online, basically. Yeah, I completely agree. It's free speech. You can go say whatever you want, but I don't have to listen to it or allow it in my space. And it, you know, this is my, I, I curate this space. I'm spending the time to show up for free. You give so much phenomenal advice for free on your Instagram daily on your podcast. You know, it's within your right to make that, make sure that's a safe space. And I think that that's what allows us to keep creating too. So Thank you. And the interesting thing is you don't actually get paid for that free content. Like that is an act of giving back to your audience. And yeah, it's just obviously so much of your audience appreciate it. And I think it should be put out to those that are there to support and also to learn. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't, I agree that I don't think people appreciate how much of it is free. You know, our podcast we've been producing for months, it is completely free. We pay thousands of dollars to produce it. And it's just a free resource because we want to get back to our community. Same on social media. I'm sure yours is the same. You know, if you're listening to this, if you're listening, if you're watching something on social media and there's not an ad in it, that is free content that someone spent their time and energy to create for you. And I think that's something that I feel really strongly about that we have a responsibility both as creators and as consumers to, you know, when I come to Liv's space, Liv invited me into her home and her circle, and I'm going to bring that same energy and positivity. Something that you've done phenomenally well is you built a personal brand. So it's not just a staging company. You built yourself, Liv Conlon, and that's allowed you to take it in different, you know, be a speaker, do consulting, coaching, courses. What advice would you give to someone who's trying to start a personal brand? What do you think has really helped you to get to where you are today? Yeah, so I would say everything you do is your personal brand. When you meet someone in person, whether it's online, it all stems from that place. And, you know, whether you want a personal brand or not, whether you think you have one or not, you've got one. And it should really be curated if you're in business, of course, unless you're doing this for fun, then you can do, you know, go wild. But if you are in business and you're building your personal brand, You've got one already and I really first advise you to do a bit of a personal brand audit. Like, where are you right now? Are you showing up in the way that you'd like to? Are you being, are you the person, the go-to person for what you want to be? And I think it's first defining what that is. So what do you want to be known for? And then all of your actions should really be directed towards that. So for example, if I wanted to become, which I did, the the go-to person for home staging in the UK, everything I was doing every single day was working towards that goal, whether it's putting out, you know, thought leadership content, interviewing other leaders in the space, and really putting yourself in that place, but also have the uncurated content as well, which is your behind the scenes, and it's getting people to know you because at the end of the day, a personal brand connects with other people. 
the hint is in the word personal um, and people want to get to know you. So Shannon, your personal brand's awesome. And, you know, I feel like I've known you for years, although we've only connected recently because I followed you and you bring your audience into your life. And I think, you know, as a personal brand, you don't need to share all, but what you do share needs to be transparent and it does need to be authentic. Yeah, I agree with that. If you're just getting started creating content, especially the behind the scenes content, I think it's a little bit harder to curate. Let's say I have a brand new personal brand. I'm starting from scratch today. I have no idea. Every time I open my phone, I'm like, I have no idea what to post, right? I'm in real estate, but what am I supposed to post? Especially the behind the scenes stuff. Can you help? Like, how would you start to curate that content and figure out what behind the scenes to post and how to create content? Yeah, perfect. So basically where I'd start is exactly I'm in your place of zone of genius, basically. So what could you give someone that would offer value to them today? And I think you really want to create a feeling with your audience on your Instagram stories and on your social media that they don't want to miss out on what you're saying, that they're actually going to grab their phone, run away from their children, lock themselves in the bathroom and listen, turn the volume up and listen to every single thing that you see on it because you're adding such value. Um, so I'd say that most of your content should be adding value to your audience in some way, not making it about yourself, but actually trying to add value to their life, whether that is in business or whether you're trying to educate them or give them value in sharing, you know, your interiors or your family. Um, so I just think at every point, am I just going on social media to ramble on or am I actually going to add value? And often if I don't feel like I can add value, even though I'm like, oh, I've not posted today, I need, I need to go on Instagram stories and do something. Sometimes I'll hold up the phone, ramble on for 30 seconds and delete it because it's like today I'm just not showing up the way I should. Um, so yeah, I would show up when you're in that zone. I love that analogy. Would this content make someone run to the bathroom, lock the door, <laughs> lock everybody <laughs> out? That's a really good, there's all these like tests that I'll put my content through to say like, is this publishable? And I think something that I'm always reminding myself is we can create a lot of content that doesn't get published either. You know, it's okay to learn to be a content creator. So I love that advice. Okay. I want to get kind of personal here with you. Um, obviously, I'm sure everything hasn't gone perfect glass wall, you know, perfectly smooth. <laughs> so I would love to hear, you know, what you're comfortable sharing. What do you feel like were the biggest mistakes or lessons learned or like biggest obstacles that you had to overcome? Yeah. So, oh my goodness, I love to share a few flaws or a few mistakes. Um, so yeah, I would say that one of my pieces of advice was to get optics on your business. And that's my one of my main pieces of advice because I totally never had that. Like because we experienced such rapid growth, we were basically just running, running, running without checking what was actually going on. So for me, like I overspent on so many different elements of the business, paying accountants like tens of thousands of dollars here, there and everywhere because I wasn't, you know, tracking my expenses and doing everything correctly. So I'd say that the optics have been everything. And because I am a creative, like I love just putting stuff out there that makes me happy, that makes the audience happy. But is it actually bringing in any form of income? Um, so secondly, one of my mistakes have been, you know, as, as useful as social media has been to my business, like we organically built a seven-figure business to no paid ads. But for a long time, we were posting content, spending 
hours putting hours into it and it was literally delivering nothing and I know that at CEO school you're such big fans of like tracking what content's actually bringing in uh, clients and followers and stats and everything and that's another thing we invested so much time into marketing that had absolutely no return on investment apart from lessons in life um yeah and I'd say that third my biggest issue has always been team finding the right team to carry out what we do and especially with the the home staging side of things it, like my standards are totally different to what most other human beings standards are yes here talk more about this I feel like as the CEO owner this is a problem we all feel deeply in my bones that like I do it right and then other people's standards are just not to the same level so talk go deeper there yeah so like I would say that our success was really built on one my eye for design being so great and being able to really execute something to perfection. Now, I'm not a proud perfectionist, but when it comes to interiors, like we had everything so perfect if I was there, that if I then had a team member, I probably spent at times eight hours a day on WhatsApp editing properties that they were 500 miles away. And I was like, move that cushion 0.3 centimeters, chop that cushion slightly more. (laughs) This is so relatable, it's so relatable. (laughs) move that table slightly forward and push this like it was to an extreme um and through that like we just lost so much time I lost enthusiasm in my team because I had this totally high standard that no one could achieve apart from me um and yeah that was that was challenging because I actually had so many team members come and go um, because it was no longer becoming enjoyable with this impossible standard. Now I'm slightly getting better at that. I've got more of an 80% cook type approach to things, but I still struggle with it. Yeah. I still want to re-edit something someone's done. I still want to perfect it. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something I've struggled with. I think it's probably been, being a perfectionist has been one of my biggest downfalls, but in a few ways, also something that's really supported me too. I think a lot of people listening can relate to that feeling of perfectionism and something you might laugh, but something I always say to myself is, is it not good enough or did I just not do it? Like, is it really not? (laughs) That's a good question. Is it not to the standard that it needs to be at or is it just not the way I would have done it? And really being able to let go of, okay, it doesn't have to be the way that I did it as long as it meets our standard as a company. And I think that's something that I hear from a lot of entrepreneurs when they're hiring team members. This is like all of our biggest struggles, right? We built this business because we have a passion. We want things done a certain way and we see the vision for it and we're visionaries. And then helping other people do it in exactly that way, it's not just hard, it's impossible. It can't be done in exactly the way that your your vision is. And so you have to be flexible there and in how it's going to come to life. Yeah, absolutely. And I was working with a business coach at the time and I was telling them these issues of the cushions not being, you know, 0.1 centimeters in place. And he, he said to me, you know, everything that you're talking about, the consumer, the client doesn't even see that. So a lot of the time, what we're actually working on it doesn't even come into the client's radar. It really doesn't. It's literally my eyes and no one else. 
hence why no one else could see what was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I love that. Is it is not done by me or is it that, yeah, it's not right? <laughs> well, clearly also a recovering perfectionist here. So, and I, I do, I think this is really normal, especially as women, we're hiring, we're bringing people in and you do have to let go of control. And it's not, I don't think it's letting go of control. It's allowing your vision to come to life in different ways, you know? with the pillows to be slightly different than you would imagine and it still be okay because the business is growing and going on. So I want to also touch on what you talked about with numbers a little bit more and having, we always call it a pulse on our business. What did you use? Optics. Optics, yeah. So really being able to see on one dashboard or one spreadsheet, you know, not just what's our revenue, because it can be really easy when you're growing quickly to just say, yes, 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 yes. And you're getting all these new clients and your revenue is growing up. But if you're not paying attention to the, what's the profit on each of these, you might be spending a lot of time and energy on things that actually at the end of the day, you're losing money. I can share an example. I had a cold pressed juice company for a brief period of time and it actually cost us more to operate per day than we brought in in profit. And it actually, I'm embarrassed to say this, it took me a month to realize it. It could have been a year. It could have been worse. But it took me a month <laughs> to realize that every day we operated, we lost money and selling more would just amplify the problem. And so really having the strong pulse on what are my numbers? What are the KPIs I need to be focusing on? Because revenue is not the end all be all. No, no. And it's in so many ways, obviously it's a massive achievement, but in some ways as a vanity figure as well, because, oh, yeah. you know, unless profit is there, then you could run in a million dollar business and your expenses can be 1.2. Yeah. Um, and that's, that, that is probably more common than, than people know. A hundred percent. I can put a million dollars into ads and run a million dollar business. It's not, <laughs> you know, and, and not to discredit what you built is phenomenal, but we do really need to pay attention to especially as we scale, could you scale the problems too, right? So if you had a profitability problem at a hundred thousand, then you're going to have a profitability problem at a million. If you have a team member problem with one team member with 10, it's going to be 10 X that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Your, your problems change, but yeah, they can get a little bit more severe. Yeah, a hundred percent. Okay. This has been absolutely phenomenal. I feel like I've learned so much. I'm really excited about that five second rule. Watch me put into that into practice because I will be the first to talk myself out of things. Tell us more about when your book's coming out, where everyone can come find you, where you hang out, your website, social, all that. So our listeners can come meet you, learn more, follow along. Awesome. Yeah. So Too Big For Your Boots is out in March 21. You can pick up a copy of that at toobigforyourboots.co.uk. And if you follow me on social, I'll probably never shut up about it. So you can find me at Olivia Conlon on Instagram, on Facebook. I'm pretty much everywhere. I'm Yeah. Come connect, DM me if you've I've been able to understand any word that I've said (laughs) with a Scottish accent. Um, But yeah, let me know what you took away from this episode. And I'd love to connect with anyone. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was such an honor to have you. Oh, thank you so much, Shannon. It's been incredible. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Follow us at CEO School on Instagram for show notes, inspiration, and exclusive behind the scenes that you won't find anywhere else. We also have an absolutely incredible resource for you. It's the seven lessons we learned building million dollar businesses. These are complete game changers and we want to give it to you absolutely free. All you have to do is leave a review of the podcast, why you love the show, 
screenshot the review and email it to hello at ceoschoolpodcast.com and we'll send it your way.